Hey there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 430. Well, not only is this episode number 430 of the show, but it is also our final episode. After 10 incredible years of putting this content out to the world, I decided that it's time to call it quits so that I can embrace some other opportunities that are out there. I really can't express how much this show and you all have meant to me. The original goal when I started on WVEWLP, Brattleboro Community Radio in Brattleboro, Vermont, was to maybe do 15 or 20 episodes for maybe a year. I never would have dreamed that this would have continued in this way for a full quarter of my life. Through LGBTQ victories and setbacks, President Obama's first election in 2008 to President Trump's election in 2016, a fire that burned down the station in 2011, my move from Vermont to Cleveland in 2013, happy personal times for me, and without question, some of the toughest parts of my life, this radio show, This Show is So Gay, has been my constant, and I could not be more appreciative to you all for listening over the past decade. Without question, the greatest part of doing this show has been interacting with the 600-plus guests I have interviewed. Heroes and champions, artists and warriors, inspirations one and all. I want to go out on this last episode in the same way we came in, by featuring some of those incredible voices. Invited back to the show one last time, let's get started with the first one. Netta Ulabi reports on arts, entertainment, and cultural trends for NPR's Arts Desk. She has earned multiple fellowships at the Getty Arts Journalism Program at USC Annenberg, as well as a fellowship at the Knight Center for Specialized Journalism to study youth culture. She is one of my favorite people on this planet, putting out some of the most incredible content. Netta Ulabi, for the final time, welcome back to This Show is So Gay. Thank you so much, Ken. I am. I have to tell you that I'm. I'm over the grief part of the uh, of the healing process, but I'm fully enraged right now. <laughs> I've never seen you like this. And I've seen a couple different... This is your eighth appearance on this show is so gay. And I've seen a couple different Netta Ulubis. I've seen Netta Ulubi the first time. I would say Netta Ulubi in Lust as you were watching Prince Caspian. <laughs> uh-huh. Carry on with this civil-like description of the various <laughs> Nettas who have reared their various heads. And let's just say that I've seen Rage right now. So that's it. That's what I've seen. Okay, rage and lust. That sounds about right, actually. Usually on Better Behave. But, but yeah, you've, you've, like an expert, the expert interviewer you are, you've cut straight to my soul. You found, you found out who I really am. Oh, uh, well, lust. as I said to you off the air, I'm just thrilled to have you. There, there are only a handful of people that I could see on the last episode, and I was thrilled when you said yes, and, and I'm just so happy to have you here. Oh, well, again, I, I, I can't tell you how honored I am that, that you brought me back. You have heroes and champions, and then you have me. <laughs> no, no, but I do want to talk about, you know, I've been looking at your career and, and obviously following you for, for quite some time, and you are not stopping what you're doing, but if you were to do the pause that I'm slightly obsessed with these days and look at how you've grown in doing radio work over the years. How would you describe that to our listening audience? Uh, well, you, you know, I work in the news media, and uh, I am a survivor as well as a creature of rage and lust. And so I, I really have been trying to do the kind of work that helps my organization get its shows on there every day. And unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily mean that I've been doing what I think I, the kind of reporting that's going to be blowing the heads off of the world, 
that kind of reporting often takes resources and time that arts reporters generally don't have much access to. So what I've been doing is trying to figure out how to tell powerful, creative, sound-rich stories in a media landscape where there's diminishing attention spans and a closing of a sort of ideological bubbles and attempting to try to reach beyond that and to represent all kinds of voices, get people on the air who don't always have access to to the air and listening to people who don't feel listened to. Yeah. As you look back, and, and whether it's a specific story or a specific point in time, what are you proud of, of what you've put out there? Oh, boy. Um, you know, knowing you, you probably looked, you've probably looked over my story list over the past year or so better than I have. <laughs> you know, did I ever tell you my joke about how... Um, I was at this writers' convention, which I probably have since I've been on your show like eight times. But one time I was at this a convention for women writers, and I was sitting next to this unbelievably talented young woman. She was in her twenties, and she'd just written this book about. Um, she'd gone undercover at a sorority. She was really young looking, and she wrote this big expose about what it was like to be in a in a sorority. It's, it's a terrific book, and. Um, and somebody in the audience uh, asked her some very generic question, or asked all of us some generic question about, like, how do you how do you do your work? And she looked at this woman very seriously, and she said, well, my agent told me that writing a book, and this is something you know, Ken, writing a book is like a marriage. And some days you wake up, and you're just filled with bliss and appreciation, and you cannot believe your good fortune, that you get to leap out of bed and spend your entire day with this gorgeous project and it loves you and you love it and then other mornings you wake up and you think how can I get out of this hell with this awful monster that's trying to take over my life and all I want to do is run it's just like in, like a marriage you have to you have to enjoy the good parts and ride through the bad parts and and do it kind of a day at a time and uh and everyone nodded appreciatively I was like oh yeah that's really good advice and then it was my turn and I was like well <laughs> my job is is not like a marriage I come in and I do new things every day it's a lot more like a bunch of one night stands <laughs> and to be honest you remember the good ones you remember the bad ones <laughs> and then there are some you just don't remember at all <laughs> I feel like you've had that experience where someone's gotten in touch with you and saying, thank you for doing that story on me. And you're like, mm, sure, I remember that. You know, what's so weird is a lot of the times it's the, one that, the ones that just get dashed off that are the ones that somehow ring the biggest bells. And oh, I yeah. don't know why that is. And I, have you had this experience? Yes. I, I have lots of journalist friends who have this experience. And I'll give you an example. Like just last week, I did a story that was literally a minute and 20 <laughs> seconds long, which is short for us. You know, that's really short. And right now, all the the our news shows are filled with these tiny little news holes. <laughs> the word holes now has all kinds of <laughs> issues after after hole. Yeah. That uh, that you know there are a lot of jokes about <laughs> these little holes. Um, and you know I spend a lot of time figuring out how to fill these little holes. So here I am in Los Angeles. That's where I'm working right now. And I got this press release about this uh, art exhibit. This big, it's a huge art show here in Los Angeles. The biggest one, I think. And there was an artist who has an exhibition that's just like 20 bright red 
big punching bags. And guests who are at this art show are invited to put on gloves and actually hit the punching bags, which is made all the more piquant because each punching bag is emblazoned with the face of a different world leader. (laughs) And I was like, this is great. One and a half minute long radio. Like you can hear the bags getting punched. Like right now, who doesn't feel like punching somebody? And uh, so I went and and I got sound and uh, did this little piece and, you know, was very, very obviously very as even-handed as possible, although made it very clear that this was an art show in California, and a certain leader of the free world was getting more of his fair share of punches, perhaps. You would not believe all the... All, I, I think there was something cathartic about it. Just listening to it was cathartic. And I got more mail and more response about that little piece than about anything I've done um, in ages. And I did, I did a piece that I thought I was going to get a lot of hate mail about earlier this year. And that was this piece. I really kind of felt like I was going out on a limb. I felt very, very, um, I felt very provocative doing this. <laughs> it was, and it was about um, how we're seeing more and more representations on television of non-traditional relationships, yes. meaning polyamorous or open relationships, um, or even I, I don't know what else to call them besides either polyamorous or open relationships. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of poly, pansexual, whatever. Um, and uh, and. I was so I was so nervous that you know far right conservatives would come down on me for being too sexy that far left sexy people would come down on me for not being sex positive enough or for being judgy or whatever I was so worried about all of these things and I do the piece and nobody said anything oh. <laughs> nobody said anything even about the alliteration of polyamorous polysaturation you got to use that <laughs> you would think no i think a couple of swingers started following me on twitter i think that i think that's the only thing that happened <laughs> That's a new podcast right there. I'm thinking, what am I going to do next? Well, obviously, I'm starting the new podcast, the Polyamorous Polysaturation Podcast. That would be amazing. Except apparently no one's going to care. No one's going to care. <laughs> Nobody listens to stuff like that. Or if they do, or maybe they just do it quietly and they don't want they just don't want to out themselves as, I love that. as listeners to such to such filth. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, we we've talked over the years just about some of the geographical differences and, and even talking about LGBTQ identity across the United States. Is, is your work significantly different doing it out on the West Coast compared to the East Coast? Wow, you always ask the best questions. <laughs> you really do. It's the last episode. I saved them up. <laughs> no, you always do. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to answer because, you know, I've lived in Washington, D.C. for almost 20 years, yeah. and I just feel like I get so many of my ideas just from being in my world there, which is a very, it's a world where I have, you know, a lot of gay friends. Right. And here I get my, I feel like I get my ideas a lot more from publicists who are often, but not always gay, um, or from just conversations with people. You you do better research than any interviewer I know. (laughs) Do you feel like the work that I've done here, it feels gayer to you? It it feels, it's so funny, you know, we we always say, because I think we've actually had this conversation on the show with other guests in the past, are are East Coast gays different than West Coast gays? And the answer is always yes, but very uh, like that Supreme Court definition of pornography, you know, we know it when we see it. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe there's a subtle difference, but I, I wonder how much we're just grafting that onto 
you know, the actual content and really we're all the same? <laughs> oh, you know, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I, feel, I feel a little bad even attempting to make comparisons, just even socially, because my friends in L.A. tend to be a little younger. Uh, a lot of my friends in, in D.C. are sort of more establishment, D.C. political gaze. And the ones that, I, the ones that I'm friends with in, in L.A. just tend to be a little bit younger. Yeah. And they tend to be a little bit more like you and academic um, you know, or sort of marginally associated with entertainment. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm shooting blanks on this one. Yeah, we're gonna. I'm gonna and do some more listening. Angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just the rage. It's the rage. It was already there. We started out with that as a baseline. Well, as you mentioned, I of course did my research on all of your stories from 2017. And so, for the final time on this show, we are, of course are gonna get to what I felt were some of your gayest stories from 2017. Okay. One was was quite obviously at that intersection of LGBTQ uh, content, and, and I just thought it was such an incredibly strong story. And you covered the healthcare system and how the healthcare system fails so many transgender Americans. Right. And can I tell you something about that story? A little bit of a weird back story about that was, so I, one of the things I learned while researching, researching that story is that so astonishing to me, and I'm so ashamed that I didn't know it beforehand, but unsurprising, but transgender people have a, have a much lower access to doctor yeah. than, or to medical care than, than most Americans do. And, and also, forgive me, I don't remember the exact statistic off, off at the top of my head, and I don't want to say it because I'll get it wrong, but it's really shockingly much lower, unsurprisingly. But I learned in the course of my reporting that if you are a transgender man or a transgender woman and you want low-cost, high-quality access to health care, there is a place you can go and you will not be shamed for your body or misnamed where you're going to be respected and treated like a client who has legitimate needs, and that is Planned Parenthood. Yeah. A transgender woman could go to Planned Parenthood and get a prostate exam, or a transgender man could go to Planned Parenthood and say, you know, I still have breast tissue. Um, I, I need a I need a breast exam, and and I should emphasize that not every single Planned Parenthood uh, does these kinds of services, but many many of them do. And if they do these kinds of services, there someone has trained the staff to be sensitive to trans needs and to. Uh, and, and to not just to trans needs, but to language, to all of these issues, and to deal with stuff like insurance, which is, you know, like, there's there's still a lot of issues with, you know, how do you code somebody as a man or as a woman if they're getting a prostate exam, stuff like that. And the Planned Parenthood uh, team of, of health providers also includes people in the office end who, have, who can help out with stuff like this. It's amazing. So anyway, the day before I'm supposed to go to Richmond, Virginia, and there's one in Washington, D.C., where, where I was living, but I wanted to go to someplace a little bit more off the beaten track, and Richmond, Virginia, it was was great. Um, it's also because I work in public radio, a place I could get to on a bus <laughs> like, <laughs> for like 12 bucks. <laughs> anyway, um, the day before I left, I it was a Sunday, and I was just kicking around D.C. I think I, think I just had brunch with my friend John, uh, who used to actually be the editor of The Advocate, um, John Barrett. Yeah. And I was walking home from brunch, and the phone rings, and it's my editor, and she's like, can you be at NPR in 15 minutes? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I and I think I might have told you this, Ken, like, over the past year or so, I've been kind of move, stretching myself a little bit, trying lots of different things. And uh, so I go to, I show up at work, and I don't really know what is going on. I sort of assumed that a celebrity had died, and I needed to do the obit. No, what had happened was, and you remember this, is that some 
lunatic had shot up a church in Texas yes. and killed, you know, so many people. And they needed help. They needed a, they needed a basically lead for me to help produce from DC, from DC. So from like three in the afternoon until like one in the morning, I sat in the news hub and made phone calls to possible families of survivors and to the police, you know, trying to get statements and trying, you know, just doing this kind of thing where you are just like a robot picking up the phone and calling and leaving messages. And it is, it is terrible, terrible work and somebody has to do it. And I was, I was very happy to volunteer to do it that day. Um, even though it's obviously, it was a, it was a horrible, horrible day. Wow. And, um, and it was all the more horrible because I left a lot of messages on people's cell phones who would then call me back at like three in the morning. Yeah. And, uh, and at that point, my job was done. I had, I'd helped find people for the, the hosts to talk to. I didn't need to talk to these people necessarily, but I had to because I had left the messages and because they were in pain. And so I was up all night just talking to people who had, who lived in this community, and it was it was intense. So the next day, <laughs> I got on a bus, and I went to Richmond, Virginia, and to spend the entire next day with people who are <laughs> committed to taking care of people, particularly people who don't have access to health care, either because they're, they're living in poverty or because they're transgender or because they are transgender and living in poverty or they're simply not insured. To, to hang out with people who had committed their lives to taking care of their fellow humans, that was amazing. Wow. That was, that was probably one of the best days of my entire year, was spending that day in Planned Parenthood. Amazing. Wow. See, there's so much going on out there, and you're covering it. I, I have to tell you, well, by the way, on the list of the gay stories of the year was going to be its polyamorous polysaturation, but we've already covered that. <laughs> oh, come on. We could never, there's never <laughs> too much to say about polyamorous You want a third new Twitter follower just from this <laughs> message. Fact, I would have thirded this conversation. Can we get a little polyamorous right now? <laughs> That's amazing. You well, pick. <laughs> I'm going to move on. When you were on the show, when you were on the show last year, uh, you actually mentioned that this story was coming up, and then I had the opportunity to to check it out, to listen to it, and also get a copy of the text. And that's, by the way, one of the one of the things that I love about this show is learning about these things that are happening in culture, and and then things I might not have heard about. And without you, I actually wouldn't have known about Check Please, uh, which an incredible, an incredible comic out there that, that really is challenging a lot of stereotypes. I have to tell you, one of the funniest things about Check, Please is that at the time of this recording, it's currently the number one new release on Amazon in the category, I just love that this is a category, teen and young adult hockey fiction. No! <laughs> Actually, I, I don't even know why I'm sounding so shocked, because partly why I learned about it was because, I, as it happens, I have a a friend of a friend is a devotee of young adult teen <laughs> hockey. It, it is a giant thing. And, you know, I, it's not my thing. <laughs> and to be honest, it, it, it completely eludes me. But it's huge. It's huge. Well, and I I'm checked sure it out. I checked it out based on your recommendation, and it was amazing. <laughs> Did you enjoy it? Do you now consider yourself a, a, a fan of, of young adult Hockey fiction? I feel I contributed to it being the number one new release in teen and young adult <laughs> hockey fiction. <laughs> I think 
you did. <laughs> and by the way, I love, you know, however the little guy who lives in the internet who then decides what you see from here on out, I love that the internet is now pushing me to buy Wayne Gretzky's memoir. I don't care. I was just that trying to get hilarious. check, please. <laughs> who knows? Who knows what you could unearth in Wayne Gretzky's autobiography? <laughs> It could, you know, this this could be your your whole new podcast. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. But but what a what a really cool project. I, I I just enjoyed it. I love different things like that. Me too. Me too. I was really grateful to learn about it, and I loved the women who did it. And and you know, and, and I don't know if, uh, if <laughs> it's doubtful that people would necessarily remember, but the, but the women who did this 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 uh, comic about about young all white uh, uh, hockey players who are, you know, under, undergraduates in, in college. It's this African-American woman who grew up in in the South and who had never gone ice skating and who still doesn't really ice skate. Um, but, like, this incredibly smart woman who got into both Harvard and Yale. And while she was at Yale, sort of found herself fascinated by hockey players as the kind of other, as this kind of this super white, super macho super jockey kind of culture and she just became sort of intrigued by them and started to uh started to study <laughs> collegiate hockey as almost like a kind of an anthropologist and and then of course you know it's, it's sexy i mean i think even to someone who's, who's not into um hockey I, I get the i get the sexiness of it and uh and, and developed this comic about a gay romance and she's I, you know i i don't know what her sexuality is but that she's obviously not a, a gay man, <laughs> and she's she's her comic is about this these two gay male hockey players in love, and it's a very very lovely comic. It's very cool stuff. All right, I'm asking about one more. It's not necessarily gay related, but I felt that there was some subtext that maybe I'm assigning, uh, and and we'll find out as I ask you about it. You you did a story called "YouTube Stars Stress Out Just Like the Rest of Us." Mm. Why I was fascinated by this story, again, not so much an LGBTQ angle, but because there's an NPR story reporting, you know, right? An NPR story reporting about YouTube stars. And mm -hmm. I've always imagined that there's some tension there because it's such different mediums and, and there is maybe, is it fair to say, some competition there? There's such different audiences, though, I, I would suppose as well. Gosh, you know, I, I guess I simply do not see Robert Siegel competing with PewDiePie. <laughs> Well, then you should tune into my new podcast where we'll be discussing just that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's like war in Syria or double rainbows and funny cats, <laughs> you know? I, I don't know. I, I do not. I, 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 I get what you're saying. We're competing with YouTube in the same sense that we're competing with everything that's making any right. kind of demands on attention, including this podcast, by the way. Thank God it's over. <laughs> it's one less thing to worry about. Mad. Um, but uh, I, I, I find YouTube so exciting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's such a purely democratic uh, form of, of self-expression in the way podcasts are, too. Yeah. And to, and I'm fascinated by what people find interesting and what sticks. And you know, as as someone who's pushing fifty, I I, I watch. And I think this is really true. I'm, I'm watching increasingly like a grandma. I'm watching the stars, and I'm like, really? You really want to watch someone else play Minecraft for hours? But that's that's you know that's a major major thing. Um, so I, I I follow it because I'm interested in in, in what people are interested in and how these trends erupt and how they play out. And but don't you want to yell at those people? Some of those people would say, "You're please listen to more NPR instead of watching this person eat. 
<laughs> well, I, I will. It has crossed my mind crazily that when these YouTube stars post about their their NPR stories. Well, maybe hopefully their followers will listen at least to that NPR story, and perhaps you know, it'll be that story will be their gateway drug to NPR. I love but it. That that might be a bit much to hope for. <laughs> By the way, I'm sorry. In that moment, I just pictured your resume saying Netta Ullaby gateway drug gateway to drug. NPR. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's right. Lust, rage, and also pusher. <laughs> Enabler. She's an enabler, enabler folks. An enabler. <laughs> I prefer, yeah, I prefer pusher. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I have to ask you, what is coming up that you are excited about? I am working on, at this exact moment, um, I'm sort of, there's, there's a piece I don't want to talk about right now, but I'm working on a piece that I think is going to be really, really sweet. And it is, so the Oscars are going to, they'll probably have been announced by the time this podcast airs. Yeah. Uh, and I am betting on the fact that the movie Get Out, which was one of my two favorite movies last year, and you and every other gay will be mad that the other one is not um, uh, Call Me By Your Name, which I found, I'm not even going to talk about it because people will just come to my house and kill me. Um, <laughs> Wait, what was the other one? So my two favorites were Get Out and The Florida Project. I didn't see that. That's so good. Okay, I got to see that. All right. It's so good. It's like, I, you know, I... I I, I had really high hopes for The Shape of Water, and I, I wasn't big on The Shape of Water. I thought... I just saw it yesterday. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's so pretty. Yeah. And, um, you know, but I, I got to say with The Shape of Water, there wasn't a single thing that happened in that movie that I didn't expect to happen. Right, right. You know, Florida Project, I thought, had far more menace and far more mystery. And it's about poor kids in, like, a little hotel in Florida, right by... Disney World, and I was just riveted throughout the entire movie okay. and terrified at moments and completely just filled with wonder at others. It's it's a brilliant movie. It's so good. Um, <laughs> let's go back to Get Out. Uh, By the way, every out. time you say Get Out, I always want to say, oh, you mean Golden Globe-nominated uh, comedy <laughs> or musical Get Out. Sure. <laughs> That's right. Or, who knows, by the time this, com- this comes out, Best Picture nominated there Get you Out. Go. There you the go. There you go. So anyway, if you've seen the movie, you know that there is a kind. There's a sidekick character who's really heroic and reliable and resourceful and trustworthy, and who's also an agent with the transport, the transportation security yes. agency. And we don't tend to see those guys and women in blue portrayed as brave and resourceful or as anything other than just irritants or like perverts who like patting you down. And I, I, and as I was watching the movie, I, I thought I really appreciated that they took this really maligned job category. You know, and, and, and TSA workers, I just learned this pretty recently, they're among the lowest paid federal employees. They're just, they've just got really crappy jobs. And and they have to deal with things like loaded weapons. They, they find thousands of them, thousands, literally thousands of loaded weapons in people's luggage, like every week. Well, wow. not every week, but every year they find thousands. And it's it's not, you know, and they're having to deal with these incredibly stressed out people who are treating them incredibly disrespectfully a lot of the time. It's, it's you know, and, and I thought it was great that they were taking these, these folks whose job it is is just to help people who are trying to get to where they need to go safely and often giving them attitudes, and they were making this guy a hero. So I was like, I'm going to see what TSA officers think about this movie, and I interviewed a bunch of them, and they were hilarious and just really lovable. And, you know, of course they love the movie, and they're cheering for the movie. And um, and as I talked, and this is something else that may be happening, these are also folks who 
at this time when when the when the podcast airs, there may be a government shutdown in place. Right. Which means that these people have to go to work in their blue uniforms, and no one's going to pay them. Yeah. No one's going to pay them until the shutdown is over. They just have to go to work and somehow feed their families and buy gas to get to work without a paycheck. It's it's so crazy. Wow. Hey, there's a lot going on in the world. There's other yeah. podcasts that will have to cover it, though. Your final question for your appearances on this show is so gay. We will always end with a little bit of learning annex for our listeners <laughs> out there. For for all of our listeners who want to get their voice out there in, in the most authentic way, because I've said this to you a million times over, or at least eight times, that one of the things that I love about you is how authentically you put your voice out there. What advice do you have for our listeners who, who want to get their voice out there in a meaningful way? Do interviews with Ken as often as possible, eight times minimum. It's the best. It's the best way. It is honestly, actually, Ken, I just have to tell you this, doing this with you, every time I talk, I'm so happy afterwards. I feel like I've taken this, like, wonderful sort of, I don't know, interviewee kind of bath that just makes me feel fresh and angry. (laughs) Less lusty, too, but that's also probably a good thing. Uh, it's no, it's 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 just been it's just been it's been beyond a pleasure to get to talk to you, and I and I just wish it was eight more times or eight hundred more times. I I'm really going to miss our our podcast check-ins, and I I am just grateful that we now have enough of a friendship that I can look forward to talking to you privately yes. in the future. Yes, and I will say this about you and in in having this last opportunity. Well, not the last opportunity to listen to your content. I'm going to keep listening to it. It wasn't just yeah, for this. <laughs> But I, I will say, it, it just the same phrase keeps coming back to me over and over again. Whatever your intentions have been in doing things the way that you do them, you have held me to a higher standard, and that has been the greatest gift that you have brought to my life. Just in encountering your content and witnessing the way that you approach your craft in such a beautiful way, it has held me to a higher standard, and it has, without question, made me better at what I do. And I am so appreciative, Netta. Oh, now you're gonna make me cry. <laughs> I wanted one more emotion. We had to, we couldn't end with rage. <laughs> soggy rage. You're gonna have me ending in, in a pool of soggy rage. Oh, uh, and also, and also, um, and also, just heartfelt appreciation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Without question, Netta Ulbi, please keep doing what you're doing. And I will look forward to your next iteration. It's gonna be awesome. All right, folks, and we are back with our last ever guest. Kathy Renna is a longtime LGBTQ activist and is the principal of Target Q, a public interest PR communications firm focusing on LGBTQ and HIV-related issues. As a major force behind the success and growth of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, where she worked for 14 years, Kathy served as a primary spokesperson for GLAAD, as well as their first national news media director. She has contributed to the Strategic Crisis Communication 
communications and community relations components of GLAD's most visible campaigns. She's been interviewed all over the place and in what I can only imagine is a resume builder for her, along with Netta Ulibi and Dr. Frankie Bashan, Kathy Renna holds the record of appearing on This Show is So Gay the most number of times. So for the eighth and final time, Kathy, welcome back to This Show is So Gay. Thank you. I'm adding that to my resume. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I thought you would. Only because, only you know, having Netta's name attached is, of course, very prestigious. Well, you and I have talked about this off the air, but now we're going to talk about it on the air. You have done career transitions. You have moved from organizations where you've had a long and lasting impact like GLAAD onto other ventures. How are you at doing the transitions thing? And by that, I mean, help me. Exactly. And I am happy to, and I will. So it's not easy. You know, it feels a little bit like that proverbial metaphorical jumping off a cliff thing. But I'm also somebody who started out, you know, volunteering for GLAD, uh, sort of just to do something and to get involved in the community because I don't drink. So how life turns out is, you know, not always what we expect. Yeah. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, when you put your heart into it and your intentions are good and you want to change the world for the better in some way, shape or form, things always work out. And I feel like this will not be our last conversation where other people get to eavesdrop. Okay. All right. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. But I can't tell with you. You either are in one direction or the other, and we're going to find out right now. When you left GLAD, did you keep your finger on the pulse of things there at GLAD, or did you just move on? Well, you know, it's interesting because it, that has sort of waxed and waned uh, over the years. I mean, obviously, it was many years ago now. You know, GLAD is a place where I, I have to say, as a person, I feel like I grew up. You know, yeah. I became an adult because I really did start out as a volunteer clipping with a scissor, clipping articles out of, like, the Washington Post and the Washington Times. And, you know, I left as someone who had this extraordinary experience of dealing with so many issues and thousands of people on a national level, on a local level, and just really understood what it was like to really feel that privilege and responsibility of, of being active in the community. So GLAD was always my home. I mean, I was... It took years for people to stop calling me Kathy Renner from Glass. Right. Like that was like that became my surname. Uh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and eh, you know, maybe uh, close to a decade later, it started to wax and wane a little bit that people would stop. But I still get that. I still have people who I'm going to creating change later this week in Washington. It's the 30th annual creating change. We wow. have over 4,300 people registered. Wow. It's in Washington. It's a year since Trump. It's going to be a very unique experience. But I know that there will be people who will come up to me and say, the first media training I ever did was with you when you were at GLAD. Wow. And then I can turn around and look at Urvashi Vad and say, you taught me how to write a press release when I was just starting out and you were the news director or the communications director at the what was then the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Right. And it's now the LGBTQ Task Force. It's so, you know, I will never shed that and I will always care very deeply about GLAD. And and really in the last three years I've watched them really come back from a what was a not so great period of activity after Joan Gary left. Right. So I'm really happy with uh with a lot of the the stuff that they've been doing um the last several years under the leadership of uh, Sarah Kate Ellis. So, but you know, that's what happens when you put a mom in charge. Yeah. Gets done, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Now, you were last on the show. I, I can't even say this with a straight face because it's so funny. You were last on the show in April of 2016. How is that right? But it is right. I would argue some stuff has changed since then. Just a little bit, you think? Um, yeah. Uh, it's really, it, it's pretty amazing. I, I joke only because I'm such a huge fan of Stranger Things that, you know, I feel like we're living in the upside down. But uh, and my daughter laughs and several people might understand what I'm saying. But the reality is, I feel like we're living in, you know, we went into a time machine and we went back to, I don't know. I mean, I'd say the Reagan years, but they weren't this bad. Uh, there was no Twitter then and not some other stuff either. But it just, it's really been emotionally, as an activist, as a person, just as a, as a American uh, who has family in Italy and who say to me, what the hell are you people doing? <laughs> Bad enough you elected Bush twice, this guy, you know? It's really been absolutely jarring. Yeah. And I think that's making it, it has made it really hard. I think people are adjusting now to the, the dealing with such a negative climate, but I think it was really difficult for people who has been activists or active in the community or just engaged in, you know, uh, politics to suddenly be in a completely different world than the, you know, the one we've been in where we felt like even if things were, were tough, we were always making progress. Yeah. And to suddenly feel not just not making progress, but being pushed back and seeing the, the folks who'd been marginalized, like the Family Research Council, the American Family Association, Focus on the Family, all of those folks, they have access to the White House Yeah, now. they do. And these are scary people. These are people that don't want us to exist at all. Never mind not have rights. Never mind not be able to get married. They just don't want us to exist. You know, today, I'm working with the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Projects. Today, they put out their uh, annual anti-violence report. And it is, based on last year, the worst year in the 22 years they've been recording wow. homicides based on anti-LGBT hate violence. 52 murders. Unbelievable. That's one a week. And those are, of course, as we all know, just the ones that are recorded. Right. And we're not the only community, obviously. So many others as well. And that's, it's just so horrifying. How does it change the tone of your work, or does it, right? Do you approach your own work in, in visibility and, and media coverage and, and getting the word out there about different efforts in a substantively altered way in a Trump presidency than you did before? Well, in some ways, yes, because, you know, we have to very much go back to a lot of the tactics that we hadn't been using for a while. You know, we haven't had to take to the streets in the ways that we have in the last uh, year and a half. We are having to debate and confront people who have a platform that had been marginalized, had right. been basically not given a platform anymore because the media saw them as uh, just not not good sources. Unfortunately, now they're working in the White House, right. so they, they take them. Uh, so I think it's it's been a, a shift in terms of how we you know, how, to, how we have to actually deal with what's going on, literally, in terms of the tactics. And then strategically is sort of like a balancing act where we, we have places and pockets in our culture, 
you know, in media, in news media, in entertainment media, in uh, in faith communities where things are better, where we've seen progress, but we're now dealing with this very divisive atmosphere, you know, this very jarring and for some people confusing uh, environment where things happen every day where you keep saying, well, this is going to be the thing that pushes it over the edge, and it never is. Right. Well, you know I do my research. I, I went back to 2011, and this is what Kathy Renna wrote in 2011. You wrote this. Uh-oh. Despite all the progress we have made, there are some major lessons we can learn from our successes and failures to propel us forward. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but from my chair, one I've been sitting in for a long time, there are some big issues that are holding us back. Denial, as they say, is not a river in Egypt, yet many are in denial about some of the most obvious obstacles we have or have created to moving our entire community forward. And and you went on to write, it's a wonderful piece that everyone should check out, and it's still unbelievably relevant, called between a rock and a hard place, the state of LGBT visibility in the media. It's it's six years later, and as I was reading through this, in some ways, Kathy, I wish I was saying to our listening audience, don't go read it. It's horribly out of date. It's not horribly out of date. No, and, and I don't know. It would still be relevant, even if we didn't have Trump, I think, on some level, because yeah. the kind of progress we really are looking for does take decades. But I think we've hit a major major obstacle and one that we're going to have to, when we do finally turn it around, and I do think things will turn around over the next, uh, through the midterm elections and the next presidential election and just generally in the culture, uh, it's going to take some time. And so I'm not surprised that, that a lot of it still resonates. I mean, I'm very, very struck by the fact that this year is 20 years since Matthew Shepard was killed. Right. And, you know, that was something that when I went out to Laramie right after he was found, I went for the trials. I worked with his family for two decades and worked on these issues and so many other cases. But his case, you know, may, remains the one that has gotten the most attention uh, in so many different ways, including having the hate crimes legislation uh, named after him and, and uh, James Byrd, the African-American man who was killed in a hate crime that same year in 1998. It's, it strikes me that... Uh, a lot of the things that I was saying then, I'm still saying now. Right. Things are better, but they're still relevant. So, like again, you know, working on this report that came out today from the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Projects, the reality is that the vast majority of those who who face violence are people of color, are trans people, are those more marginalized within our own community, and part of that is because we as a whole community uh, must deal with issues related to transphobia and racism and classism and sexism within the LGBT community, never mind, you know, what's coming at us from the outside. Right. Right. You know, one of the interesting things about your job that, I, that I've seen a couple times in the past couple of years, and I'm not going for the salacious part because you know I don't go in for that, but there have been a couple times, tell me if I'm wrong, where your work has positioned you in between two different parts of the LGBT community, you know, that, that we're not just this, this community that, that we all speak with one voice, and your work has put you in the middle of the mix. Is that fair to say? A couple different times in, in the past. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, and I'm not just not just the extreme examples. I mean, I could talk about 
piece I wrote for Huffington Post after the election, and I got attacked by, I can never pronounce his last name, Milo yeah. Yiannopoulos. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, there are those extremes, and, you know, there are the sort of the, the cognitive dissonance of the log cabin Republicans, some of them, that I just I don't understand. Even within, yes, within our own community, I often talk about how sometimes the worst sexism I dealt with, I dealt with at GLAD when I was working there. Yeah. You know, that, that there are uh, issues around sexism, particularly within the gay male community, transphobia, privilege, classism, that we still need to work through. Things are better if you look at our organizations, they're more diverse, the programming is more diverse, the staff are more diverse, but as you go up the food chain, the leadership is still not where it needs to be. Right. Boards are still not as diverse as they need to be. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I do see at GLAD that does make me very happy to see how much progress they're making. You know, their board was run by Jenny Boylan for many years. She just recently stepped down. One of the most, you know, well-known um, trans uh, authors and writers, writes for the New York Times, you know, and was the chair of the board at GLAD for many years. That's the kind of diversity that we're not yet seeing at the levels that we need to to really create the kind of change that you know is sustainable and, and long term but it but it's you know but we are making progress yeah i always try and stay positive let me ask it point blank should some of the white men in leadership perhaps step down to create space for other people you know it, it's, it's almost like it's this like the me too conversation and you know not including men it's not about stepping down. It's about making some space. Right. So stepping aside, maybe yeah. a little bit, but making space, you know, letting go of uh, and, and giving up and handing over some of the power and privilege that you wield. I do it all the time because right. I know that as a white cisgender lesbian, I actually do have a lot more privilege than many of the, the individuals, uh, that are served by the organizations that I work with yeah, and some of my clients. And so I try to be very intentional about that. You want to step aside. Um, did it when I was glad do it now with my, with my firm, but we have to be super intentional about it uh, or, or it doesn't happen. Yeah. Sometimes, and, and I don't want to dumb down this conversation, and I know it's so much more complex than I'm about to say, but there are just a couple different points in in particular in the past year where I've seen a couple organizations go at it, and I just want to say, stop doing that, you know? We, we need to have more of a united front, but at the same time, I like that we're having some difficult conversation because it really does indicate the diversity of representation that we really need at the table. Yeah, I think that my favorite anecdote that I've told since really the elections, was it was right after the inauguration. It was when they tried to enact the Muslim ban, and we were all at the airports, and people were protesting, and they hadn't yet really dug into the LGBT community yet. There's nothing major had happened. I mean, they said they took all the stuff off the White House website, but, you know, there, was, there were no policy changes or nothing like the, the atrocities that we're seeing happening at, like, Health and Human Services or... Or, or other agencies that are really frightening, or in the Supreme Court, et cetera. Um, but it was the very beginning of Trump's administration, and the LGBT community got together, and at the Stonewall Inn, because that's where we go when something good happens or something bad happens, um, there was a big rally to protest the Muslim ban. 
and there were many different organizations there, um, all the major LGBT organizations in New York City, a lot of the national ones because they're housed in New York or they have offices in New York. And I was standing there, and there's, there was a ton of media, and one of the reporters that was there said to me, you know, it's really great that the gay community is standing with the Muslim community. <laughs> and, you know, my inner New Yorker, I'm usually, like, super nice to journalists. I just kind of bite my tongue. And I said... Do you think there aren't any gay Muslims? Like, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and then, and then as, as I like to joke, it was like the sun came out, the clouds scattered, and this, this young woman walked by, and she had a big sign, and it said, every executive order affects LGBTQ people. Because we're part of every community. And as I keep saying, a little tongue-in-cheek, you know, Trump said he wanted to bring people together. He kind of is, not really the way he intended, but right. he is. Because right. I think this has really, as the younger generation like to say, has woke a lot of people in the queer community to issues related to intersectionality. Yeah. I mean, intersectionality used to be like an academic buzzword that, you know, a dozen of us would say. Now, I think people look at what's happening with DACA and the Dreamers, and they hear the stories of queer, undocumented people. Um, and they see the work of groups like Immigration Equality, and they see groups like Lambda and the ACLU helping folks. And then they, people start to go, oh, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Like, of course, you're not all. It's amazing that it's 2018 now, and we're, we're having these conversations, and they are, you know, seem obvious to some of us, but we're having them finally yeah. in ways that we haven't been before. Uh, progress. We like progress. Well, the, the ever, forward. ever forward. The time between your last appearance and, and this last appearance on our show also contained uh, the passing of Edie Windsor. And you are oh. uniquely positioned of everyone oh. out there to extol to our listening audience the impact, the virtues, the unbelievable personality and legacy of Edie Windsor. The dance moves. Those two. Uh, it, it, really, I miss her every day. Yeah. I, I, I forget that she's not around anymore. I see her wife put something on Facebook and, you know, start crying. It's just really painful to, to not have that bright light in the world, especially now, because she was amazing. I mean, she was wonderful and fun and funny and beautiful, but she was also badass. And she was no nonsense. And she would tell people exactly what she thought. And that combination to have that kind of person in your life. And really we all did because as she used to say, she's had a love affair with the LGBT community after the Supreme court case. And she sure was, was really extraordinary. And it was just, it was, it, to me, it was, it was even with everything else that went on last year, it really was one of the most difficult moments for me last year. Uh, it was such a, sh it, I don't know why she was 88. She had a heart condition. We were shocked. Yeah. Like, you know, as Christine Quinn said, that evening we went to the Stonewall and a bunch of people, very impromptu, hundreds of people, gathered to just be together because we didn't know what else to do. And, and Christine Quinn said something along the lines of, well, she wasn't immortal. Like, did we really? I mean, we thought she was immortal, but we knew she would, you know, she was 88 and, and uh, you know, and she had not been well for a long time. And then the other thing she said, which I thought was really great, was, you know, just because she's not here anymore, don't stop fighting. In fact, keep fighting and fight harder, because otherwise she's going to come back and haunt us all. 
which I totally agree with. I think it's absolutely true. Um, she never lost her energy or spirit or drive or love, frankly, for uh, you know doing the work, whether it was with you know young queer kids who were um, dealing with homelessness or were you know at Hedrick Martin Institute, or whether it was mental health issues and she worked with Callan Lord, or whether it was you know more stuff around marriage. Um, she stayed engaged. She didn't have to, and she stayed totally engaged and and just said, "Now what can I do? Now what can I do?" You know, okay, we 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 won the Supreme Court. Now what? You know, she was great. And it wasn't like let's go to Disneyland. It was like let's go fight another fight and win. Right. And I tell you, you know, she was a treasure, and I was totally blessed to know her uh, as a as a friend, really, and as like chosen family. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, she was. She was all of ours, and, and the whole community, I think, uh, understood that. The, the day she died, I just, you know, I had to stop going on Facebook after about a half an hour because my entire scroll became pictures of people with Edie Windsor because yeah. everybody wanted a picture with Edie, and I had taken probably half of them. So I, it was just, you know, it was just impossible to, to have Facebook up because I just, it broke my heart. Yeah. It just broke my heart. And for but, President Obama and, and for, for Hillary Clinton, for Secretary Clinton to, to speak at her funeral, for President Obama to make mm-hmm. a statement after her passing, I worry that people don't understand just how big that is. You know, that they had a voice in that process as well and lent their voice to uh, commemorate her passing. That's a big deal. It was extraordinary at her uh, memorial which is at, was at a stunning synagogue um, on the Upper East Side uh, because the, <clears throat> the LGBT synagogue in, in New York City, CBST, was no way was going to be big enough. So the rabbi, Rabbi Kleinbaum, who runs CBST, did the service, and it was actually a, a secret up until that day. Like, really, only a very small number of people knew. Uh, and when you came in, you saw the program, and you saw that Hillary Clinton was speaking. It was... It was it was really an extraordinary moment. Amazing. I mean, the mayor was there. Many uh, public officials from New York City were there. You know, every major activist that could get there. You know, I think Jim Obergefell, who was the other marriage Supreme Court yeah. um, uh, plaintiff who kind of sealed the deal uh, in terms of uh, marriage equality, uh, he changed, I don't know how many flights he was supposed to be going to Europe to make sure that he could be there for her because they were, they were so close. Um, and I was I was there the moment that they met. It was like nothing, you know, you could ever sort of imagine unless you were there. Like these two people have something in common that nobody really has in common. Like they've both been to the Supreme Court fighting for marriage equality and won. And so they were extraordinarily close and, and he was there. So it really was just incredible to be in that synagogue, in that space with everybody from folks who were um, her friends for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Her family came up from Philadelphia, her cousin and her nephew and, um, and his kids. Uh, and all of these people who were, you know, super powerful, but were really in awe because they knew how powerful she was Yeah. in her, in the way she lived her life and fought for all of us. Amazing. 
Amazing stuff. Yep. All right. Well, yeah. here we are on episode number 430. We, we are wrapping things up. I, I, I turn the mic over to you to talk to our listening audience a little bit about what we can be doing better. You know, we, we want to get our stories out there and, and you are the master storyteller out there. Your, your ability to get our voices at the table and, and to convey, you know, our unique history and our unique contributions right now to, to society so that everyone can hear that's, this is what you do so well how can we help you in this what can we be doing better well i'll tell you i am not one for hyperbole because i think it usually people lose attention when you go hyperbolic but i don't think we've ever been in a more important time to be visible to tell our stories and that doesn't mean that you have to be on national television it's actually pretty hard to be on national television if it's not about trump and what he tweeted today but it's so important to be doing this across the kitchen table, in your communities, in your churches, um, getting involved at the local level. Because we've now seen the huge resistance and uprising that I think many of us have been waiting for forever. And, uh, you know, unfortunately it took this change of events and the election of this monster, frankly. But I think now is the time that people are standing up and they're telling their stories and they're getting involved and they're understanding that they do need to be engaged because they're what makes the difference. And, uh, and that to me, you know, is the, is the only and best piece of advice I could give to people is do whatever you can to be involved, engaged in what's going on, whether it's in politics, whether it's in your church, whether it's in your kid's school, no matter where it is, to stay involved, stay engaged, and speak up. Because we're seeing what ha- we, so we've seen what happens when people don't speak up. And unfortunately, this country is on a course where really bad things can happen. And now we have no choice. Kathy Renna is the principal at Target Q. You should, by the way, just want to put this out there, listening audience, hire her. She's really good at what she does. <laughs> Stroll on over to TargetQ.com. Well, where I just told Netta Olaby that uh, she has held me to a higher standard and, and has certainly, certainly upped uh, my quality of, of what I've done over the years on this show over the past decade, I will tell you that, that what you have contributed to my life has been a real focus. You have helped me craft my message and shown me what it means to put my voice out there in a way that people will listen. And, and it's a focus that, that you have encouraged and, and helped me with in my life that I am so appreciative. This show truly would not be what it has been for 10 years uh, without you and without your contributions to our community. I am supremely and always appreciative, Kathy. I, I, I deeply appreciate that. And I, think, and I thank you because as I've said to you offline, there are not so many spaces where people in, our, in the community have the opportunity to really, truly, substantively talk about these issues and tell their stories in the way that, that they are with you and what you bring to it as an interviewer, as someone who, yes, boy, you dig up stuff from everywhere. If you found one of my columns from 10 years ago, um, I think that, that that's, not, that's not the way it happens all the time. And so I will make a promise and that is that I will do everything I can to make sure that at some point in time might be a different space, different name, different arena, we'll be having these kinds of public conversations again. It's a deal. It's a deal. Kathy Renna, please okay. keep doing what you're doing. You too.
right, folks, and that is it. This concludes the run of This Show is So Gay. Again, an incredible 10 years, a full decade of you all listening and supporting these incredible guests and certainly my efforts. I am so, so appreciative. I will tell you for the last time, please get out there. Go use your voice the way you know how to use it to make a difference for your LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for all of our allies out there. Put on your cape, use your voice, make a difference, and please and always remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?